Hi, guys. Welcome to the new thing that we are doing, Crystal Kyle and Friends. And um, we actually wanted to kick off this first one by telling you a little bit about our sort of thinking about we want what we wanted to do here, why we decided to start doing this, and also all the like concrete things about where you can find it and all that good stuff. And I guess from my perspective, Kyle, like, first of all, we've had a lot of mutual respect and always enjoy talking to each other on Rising and going back and forth on and offline. And for me, I had the sense that, you know, we we got through the 2020 election. We barely survived 2020, those of us who did. And we both have these spaces already where, you know, we are able in our daily shows to really tackle, like, this is what's happening today. And usually we both have, like, a very strong and, like, clear opinion, like, and this is what it means. This is, this is what we think about it. But I guess after the tumult and turmoil of this year— I kind of wanted a space that was a little bit more, was a little layer deeper or a little higher level, still touching on what's happening in politics day to day, because that's what we do and that's what we think about, but feeding it through a little bit of a deeper level lens and also in more of a mode of kind of exploring and searching and asking questions that we don't necessarily know the answer to rather than like, here's what we think about it. Right. Um, So first of all, Surprise, surprise, everybody. This is this is this, <laughs> this is, is the, what you've been teasing. This is the surprise. People over. This is what I've been teasing. <laughs> um hopefully they're not disappointed. Well, there's no OnlyFans. <laughs> I'm very sorry. There's no Kyle Klinsky OnlyFans. Um it is I'm not I'm not running for Congress. As some astute observer pointed out, they said Mondaire Jones is the congressman in my district, so why would I run? Because What about had... Senate though? I saw that speculation. Oh, oh Don't rule it out. Chucky Schumer. Oh good. <laughs> oh good, Kyle's running against me. No, I'm not. I'm not running against Chuck Schumer. Come on, you're gonna take that off the table just like that? You gotta at least make him sweat a little. Okay, listen, for now that's not happening. Okay. For now. Right. So this is the all surprise right. that I was teasing everybody. Um it it's a brand new podcast. It's Crystal Kyle and Friends. And um, like Crystal just alluded to, I mean a lot of people, you know, people have been telling me for a long time that they would they lo- would like to see interviews, you know? Yeah. And interviews, honestly, it's not my lane, it's not my specialty, it's not, you know, what I wake up yearning to do every day. Like I like the format of my show, but as you just alluded to, um, I am interested also in going a little deeper than just the daily news and and what's going on. And every show for Secular Talk and for Rising, it's, here's the news story of the day. Let me tell you about the news story of the day. Let me give you my opinion on it. And I love it. It's also very formulaic, though. So I also want to go a layer deeper. And I'm interested in not just the news, but also talking to certain people who I have agreements and disagreements with. And um, I also think that you're fantastic at interviewing people. And so, you you know, if if I am going to interview people, I want somebody there who's also a pro at it who can kind of <laughs> who kind of has my back and and knows where to go with stuff if I don't know where I'm going with it. So um yeah, I'm just I'm really excited for this and I think the coolest thing, the podcast itself is really cool, but also the guests that we plan on having on. That's the friends part of yes, Crystal Kyle and Friends. People are going to lose it. People are going <laughs> to lose it even just this first episode with Marianne Williamson. I think it's going to be amazing. Um but let me give everybody a little bit more information about this. So the podcast is 100% ad-free. That's something that Crystal and I agreed on right off the bat. We said, we don't want to read anything, so because that's what most podcasts do. You know, you see they, they read something at the beginning or they read something at the end. We're not doing any ads. We're not talking to any advertisers. We're reading nothing at the beginning. We're even going as far as no pre-roll ads on the video, no ads after the video, no mid-roll ads on the video. It's 100% ad-free across the board. Um, on top of that, 
the podcast is also free. So, you know, you're always going to be able to listen to the full thing. There's no content that's behind a paywall. You're going to get every single thing from the first word to the last word. And it's available on all the places where people go to get podcasts now. Um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Alexa, Overcast. Overcast? I didn't even know that was a thing. I don't know. Uh, Pocket Cast, Castro, CastBox, Podchaser. So wherever you get your podcasts, this is going to be there. Um, it is also going to be on YouTube. Now, if you want to get, if you want to tip us, then, because we're going to be 100% listener funded, if you want to tip us, it's $5 per month on Substack, and that will get you the video of the podcast, and it'll get you the video a day early. So everybody will get the audio, the audio will come out a day later, It $5 a month, it's a, the video, and it's a day early. Uh, you'll get the first three or so videos free, um, and... We also have a newsletter that's going to be going out. We're going to have a newsletter twice a week. You want to tell the people a little bit about that? Yeah, it'll just be a little bit like thoughts on the week, on the early half of the week, and then uh, like a little preview of who we have in the show and the way we're thinking about the show. Mm -hmm. um, so just a little bit of like additional context and content of what we're doing every week. And um the first few episodes we're actually just going to post to your channel in That's addition right. to all the like podcast places where you go. That's but correct, yeah. That way, you know, there is no $5 to start with. Everyone can check it out on your channel. And then after a little while, we'll make it the video part only on Substack. That's correct. So yep. that is all the sort of like all the logistics and all of those good things. I think it's a really interesting week to be starting this, though, because obviously, you know, it's the new year. So there's like a very clear turning point, putting 2020 behind us. But there's also really interesting things happening in Washington this week that both have implications for the immediate in terms of like, do people get $2,000 checks? And is, you know, is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party actually going to challenge power and try to use their leverage to do anything? But those questions also really translate into sort of bigger shifts and bigger questions about what this year is going to look like, what politics moving forward are going to look like, and how some of these things are ultimately going to play out. I mean, one of the things that we've both been watching closely is this fight over whether or not progressives should use the leverage they have in the speaker vote to force any concession with the mm -hmm. one that's been, you know, most prominent, most popular, a Medicare for all floor vote. And it's been really kind of disconcerting how much pushback there's been on that idea, which to me is like, seems really basic and really obvious. You have this point of leverage. You have a thing that you want. And look, okay, if Medicare for all floor vote isn't the thing you, that you want, I think that makes a lot of sense in a pandemic. But if there's a different set of like things that you want to ask for, everybody get together and figure that out. But instead, it's just been this dismissal of like, yeah, no, we're probably not going to do that. Yeah, you're actually, funny enough, you're seeing the wisdom of the tactic in real time as you see what Bernie did forcing, trying to force the vote right. on the $2,000 checks. Because yes, very analogous, actually. What happened was, with Bernie saying, no, I'm not going to, we're not even going to pass the defense bill unless you allow a vote on the $2,000 checks, what happened as a result of that? Now he even forced Biden's hand, where Biden had to say in a press conference, yeah, I support the $2,000. Barely, reluctantly. Previously, he wasn't saying yeah. it, though, right? Yeah. But this is what happens. <laughs> you drag the Overton window by forcing stuff. That's exactly what the Tea Party did. It's exactly why John Boehner stepped down, you know? 
Um, and it is exactly the kind of thing that we're looking for with hashtag force the vote, which is, and it's not even, I don't, I hate it when people say, oh, it's, it's performative or it's symbolic. Mm -hmm. Like, no, not really. Like it, soon as we know we're going to have that vote, do you have any idea the pressure that's going to be exerted on Washington, D.C., how many people you can get in the street, how many phone calls you can make to every single congressperson's office, where you convince them that if you don't do this, you're going to lose your reelection. There's no doubt about it. Right. So, yes, you know, is it likely that it won't actually pass? Yes, of course. But I'd rather have a 5% chance of getting it than a 0% chance of getting it. And you have a 0% chance of getting it if you don't have the vote at all. And so you have the vote. You drag the conversation in the Overton window to the left. You make that an actual litmus test. And then you'd be surprised when you fight and you stand for something, it pays dividends. And like we saw with the $2,000 checks, if you're dragging even Biden to admit that it's a good idea, right. who knows what the hell could happen with Medicare for all during a pandemic where 315,000 people are dead. Now it's 330,000 people. I blinked and it's 15,000 more. I mean, you have the people on your side. Why wouldn't you want to make that abundantly clear? And That's create right. a, and, and make it clear, like, who is on the side of the people and who is not? Because, look, the whole Democratic Party pretends to be on the side of the people, pretends to support some sort of health care as a human right. Like, why wouldn't you at this critical moment want to make things completely clear for people? And the other part of this debate that has been kind of frustrating in the way that it's played out and the way that both of us have been portrayed in this is we've been portrayed as the anti-AOC left. Ridiculous. Listen. Which is like and it annoys me on so many levels because. The the part probably the part of it that annoys me the most is this idea that politics should be covered as like almost like a celebrity culture thing where you're in somebody's camp or you're in somebody else's camp. No, like we have certain values and principles. And if you support those, that's great. And we're going to support you supporting those principles, give credit to anyone who is like driving things forward in a positive direction. And we're going to critique when that's not the case. It doesn't make you anti this person or that person. It's just like completely ridiculous to me. I am a co-founder <laughs> of Justice Democrats. The idea that I'm against our number one star who succeeded yeah. is beyond ridiculous. What I'm trying to do is hold the organization and the politicians to the original principles that we founded it for. Right. That's what I'm trying to do. The whole idea was one of the original names that we floated, Jenk and I were having these conversations, was Left Tea Party. What if we called it the Left Tea Party? Yeah. Because that was the idea. If you have these unapologetic, really strong people on the left, what can we get done? What can we accomplish? How far can we drag the conversation back to the left? Can we actually win on some of these really important issues? And so to to describe me as anti-AOC left, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, I'm obviously having a strategic disagreement and trying to make her do the thing that I thought she was going to do in the first place. And also, let me add, I don't think, and this is where I think some people misstate this and get this wrong. It's not that if they don't do this strategy, they're corrupt. No, they're not. They're obviously not corrupt. They're, she's not the new Nancy Pelosi if she doesn't do this strategy. Mm. That's nonsense. Because the fundamental difference is she doesn't take corporate money. She doesn't take big money. She only takes through small dollar donations. And if you actually go to the voting record, 98 to 99 percent of the time, she's going to vote the way you want her to vote. Whereas Nancy Pelosi is only going to vote the way you want her to vote 60 percent of the time. Right. Huge difference. Gigantic difference. So it's not it's not like I'm maligning their intentions or I'm calling them corrupt. Right. or I'm saying they're they've sold out. Not at all. I'm saying. You're making a strategic blunder because you're trying to play the game from within the system when you're up against 
the Machiavellian master who's always going to win in those backroom negotiations, is always going to roll you, is always going to stab you in the back. And so stop playing that backroom game. Use the only power you have, which is the bully pulpit. And unfortunately, they're not doing it yet, but we're trying to force them to do it, and we'll see what comes of that. I mean, it's it's an important strategic divergence, but yeah, it's not calling her corrupt or evil or bad or like Nancy Pelosi or anything of the sort. It is interesting, though, and I feel like in some of the interviews that she's given, she's a little bit self-aware of this, of like when she came into Congress, you know, famously first, like protested outside of Speaker Pelosi's Mm -hmm. office, forced her hand as a freshman member, right, who knows nobody and nothing and, you know, is just new in this town, forced Pelosi's hand on Green New Deal in actually a way that's not that dissimilar from what people are asking her to do around Medicare for all. Exactly right. Forced them to actually make it concrete have a vote on a resolution, got support from Senator Ed Markey, which is probably the reason why he managed to get um, reelected after a very strong primary challenge. Like these things actually ended up having value. But it's I think it's really human nature that it's very hard to resist once you're inside of an organization. And these people aren't theoretical people. They're people that you're working with, that you're Mm -hmm. having lunch with, that you're exchanging messages with, and that you're somehow in this culture and in this club. Like, this isn't specific or personal to her. I think it's a very hard thing to resist. I think it takes a very specific type of resolve and maybe personality type to be the Bernie Sanders who's That's willing right. to be ridiculed and treated like a gadfly for years and years and years in the Senate because he's willing to go against the prevailing wisdom of absolutely everybody. Yeah, and this actually segues perfectly into the conversation that we're going to have, which is insider versus outsider. And like you're you're accurately pointing out, once you're on the inside, things feel different. I know because every time I've been to Politicon, I've been there a number of times now, I make a point of it's just Corin and I, and we go sit in a corner, and we're by ourselves. And I do that on purpose, <laughs> because I don't want to have a pleasant conversation with Bill Crystal and be like, you know, the war criminal is actually a really He's nice guy. A nice guy. So, you know, then, you know, next time a story comes up with Bill Crystal, I'm going to go soft on him, because I met him, and he's really nice to me. I don't want to know him. I don't want to know him, because right. I think I'm more objective as an outsider. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is why we saw this week with Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman, when they were asked on CNN, they would not commit to supporting Nancy Pelosi. Nina Turner. Nina Sa- Turner. Same These thing. are people who are on the outside. Now we'll see when they get on the inside, what's going to happen. It seemed seemingly even to the best of them, that human nature element takes over mm-hmm. and it's tough, but you're right. And I think the more we stay true to that outsider mindset, the better we are. And our guest is 100% an outsider, and that's one of the main reasons why I respect her so much. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have sort of the opposite problem. And by the way, I want to say this isn't an excuse for anyone, because if you get elected to a position of public power, like, I don't care that it's hard or uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, that's not—it's not an excuse, but I do think it— for me, it helps me to understand what's going on and why no matter who comes in and what their best of intentions are, they end up starting to see things the way that the establishment sees them, even as they may share the same principles that you and I share. I mean, I came up through, you know, running in a Democratic primary and becoming a Democratic nominee and then being on MSNBC. I mean, you talk about Bill Crystal, like Michael Steele, all these people. I've, I know these people. I've met them. I've been in the green rooms with them. And it does, it does make it harder to 
be objective, to like criticize them in that way, even though when I think about it and I ask myself, it's very irrational. Like, what do I care what they think of me? You know, like, I don't care. You know, it's 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 a very irrational, but I think very deep seated thing in human nature to have a lot of trouble criticizing accurately, even if you're not making it personal, people that you know on a personal basis. But, you know, one of the things that I've been reflecting on as we've seen this all play out, and and I do, you know, we've both been critical of certain strategic choices of Bernie Sanders as well, but I give him so much credit for pushing the issue of direct checks and putting that on the table and forcing it to a place where now it may actually happen. And I do think he's a very unusual person who's been able to maintain that outsider power over years and years and years of being in D.C. And I think that there's like there's certain strategic advantages that come along with it. The insider has certain advantages and the outsider has certain advantages. And as you were saying, you know, setting up for our guest here, we both wanted to talk to someone who had a great feel for, like, the day-to-day politics and has been through it all, but also has a little bit of perspective on the moment that we're living through and understands that experience of the outsider incredibly well. And so um, it was kind of a no-brainer, honestly, for us to ask Marianne Williamson to be our first guest. She's a best-selling author. She's a deep thinker. Um, She really, I think, maybe more than anyone tries, whether you agree with her assessment or not, to get to the roots of what's going on in America, not just the sort of um, top level and the policy strategic choices. So um, very excited for the interview with her. Yes. So without further ado, um, I want to wrap this up before we jump into the interview by telling everybody, hope you enjoy the surprise. (laughs) I love you very much. We love you very much. Mommy and daddy. (laughs) Love you very much. And uh, please subscribe to Crystal, Kyle, and Friends on Substack. Yep. I think that this is going to be a lot of fun, and I'm really excited. We're and without further ado, about it. that's right. Without further ado, here's Marianne. Marianne, it is so nice to see you actually in person because well, we've been talking the whole year, but it's been quite a while since we've been face to face. So, welcome. So glad to have you. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you always. And it's an honor to be here. Thank you. And an honor to meet you, Kyle. Yes, this is the first time I've met you. And like you said, I do feel like I already <laughs> know you. Um, it's weird how, how Twitter works and how, I guess, you know, politics works and new media and everything because you do feel like I feel really close to you. I feel close to Andrew Yang, mm. who's also another person who you could say is like an outsider candidate, like you were for president. Um, and yeah, I meet you, but I feel like I've I've known you for a while. And I guess that's also how it works with new media, too. Like for everybody who watches Rising or Secular Talk or everybody who's a fan of yours or was a voter of yours, they just, you know, they feel like it's a parasocial relationship, I think is the name for it. They have a relationship with you, but you don't necessarily know them, but they still feel really close to you. So it's just a cool thing. And I'm kind of like a kid in a candy store meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> many, many years ago, I went to a dentist And she was working on my mouth. I'd never been there before. And she starts talking to me about my brother-in-law. And I was starting to get freaked out. How does she know my brother-in-law? What is she? And it turns out she either went to my lectures or heard my tapes and had heard an anecdote about my brother-in-law. But I remember this woman had her hands in my mouth. I was freaked for a second. (laughs) How do you know about my brother-in-law? Pretty funny. And then I realized that it's what you just said. Yes. Well, I actually had a little bit of the opposite experience. I hope you don't mind me sharing this because we got to know each other before— 
you launch your presidential campaign. But I knew you because you had been on television before. Right. So we had that relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we endorsed on opposite sides of a congressional primary. Uh And we're both down in North Carolina supporting our candidates, decided to get together for dinner. And I've never told you this part, so I'll tell you now. I was like, I was actually really nervous to have dinner with you because I see you as such a like, Beautiful, glamorous, yeah, right elegant back at person. You, right back and I'm at you. I'm like a super messy eater. So <laughs> I was really nervous that I was gonna like end up with food all over my face and be humiliated. And then you were just so comfortable and at ease and like clearly dug right into that food in <laughs> at ease ways. I was like, all right, we're gonna get along really well. <laughs> yeah. Um that's hilarious. Um so one of the things I wanted to tell you is that my first experience with you was I think in the first debate, the first Democratic debate where you were on the stage. And you definitely stood out. You stood out in a way that's tough because you're on a stage with a bunch of people. Everybody up there has to have some semblance of a personality to even get on that stage. Yeah, there's it's a real it's a real battle of like egos up there. But you stood out and you stood out so much so that I talked to my mom the next day and I asked her who she liked in the Democratic debate. And the very first thing she said was, I like that one on the end. (laughs) <laughs> and that was you. And so then we got into a conversation about you. And um, I guess the first thing I want to ask you is, what's it like, first of all, to even like dot all the I's and cross all the T's to run for president, how you have to get like a staff and the staff has to know what they're doing. And like, how the hell do you find somebody who knows like what to do in Iowa to set up all the groundwork and whatnot? So what's it like to be an outsider, run as an outsider, and then on top of dotting the I's and dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, you're also just genuinely not given a fair shake by the media. You were downplayed. You weren't given equal time in the debates. You just weren't given a fair shake. When you're viewed as an outsider sometimes, it's just they write you off from the jump. So speak a little bit to that experience. Well, there are a lot of aspects to what you just asked. Uh, where do you want me to start? Which of those? Because they're all start with there's the, some different things. Start there. with the dot and the I's and crossing the T's in terms of like, how did you get the staff <clears throat> okay. to even run? Well, I was a little bit like Julia Roberts in the movie um, Pretty Woman. Mm-hmm. When Richard Gere gave her a lot of money and said, go buy a dress. And she's going up and down Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills and nobody will wait on her. Mm. I had put out uh, a, a video, not even saying that I was running, but saying I was thinking about it. And immediately people sent $400,000, which said to me I should do it. Wow. And then the money started coming, and I was I started calling people. And nobody wanted to run Marianne Williamson's campaign. Everybody was waiting to see if Beto was going to get in or Elizabeth Warren was going to get in or or Joe Biden was going to get in. So nobody, nobody would talk to me. Hmm. And uh, that was very difficult. And um, I, I clearly, I'm, I'm, you know, this has been a, a year, not just for me, but I think for everybody to think a lot about their lives. Yeah. And I see where I succeeded. I see where I failed. And I think that's one of the places where uh, I failed. How so? Um, uh, first of all, it's so interesting, Crystal, because I've done... All that a campaign is is a pop-up business, mm. and I've done enough that I I should not have been lured into the idea that politics is different mm. because it's really not. And so I've done enough in business that I should have uh, done the same thing as in every other area, including the fact that the bottom line is your own gut. Mm. <laughs> that was my biggest mistake. So you would uh, trust that over the people whispering in your ear now in hindsight? Oh, yeah. Yeah? That's interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
That's and so interesting. what type of decision? I mean, I, I go through in my mind what I should have said to Anderson Cooper, stuff like that. Yeah. And then I would have said. <laughs> but, like, give us some specifics on that. Because it's funny, you know, I mean, I ran for Congress back in 2010. Great year to run as a progressive Democrat during the Tea Party wave in a conservative district in Virginia. And I sort of had the same reflection after the fact because ultimately – whether you win or whether you lose, you got to live with yourself. You got to live in the community where you ran. You've got to feel like I said the thing that I w- really wanted to say and put out there into the world. And the rest of it is largely out of your hands. What were the pieces where when you go back and look at it, you were like, you know what? My gut instinct said X and I went Y and I really shouldn't have. My content I stand by. My content I'm proud of. Yeah. 95%. If enough people look at my website and look at those videos, the problem was not enough people did because after one of those debates, clearly, and I'm, I'm pretty sure who, we all, all do, nobody, we know somebody said, get that woman off the stage. And a lot of their minions went along with doing was it. Was it the DNC, you think? People at the DNC? Uh, oh, absolutely. But they work together. It's a political media industrial complex. They're cozy. Right. They're, they're yeah. cozy, as you, you you know how this works. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I love Matt Taibbi, and I think probably in Hate Inc. says that he said, when I was growing up, if you were a, a newspaper person, if you were a media person, a journalist, the last person you'd listen to when they told you something, the person you'd be most cynical about would be a politician. Yeah. Now, ooh, they said this to me. Right, they yeah. said that to me like you're at this. No, 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 it's not supposed to work that way. Right. Um, now it's they just they just do their bidding. That's what mainstream media does, right? right. Yeah. Um, but so the content was uh, was was fine. Yeah. Um, so I don't I I didn't change my content when I talked to an audience anyone. What I do regret though is that when they came after me, uh I think I was very ill advised to not respond. Mm. People said that'll bring attention to it, which is ridiculous because the tension was there. I should have gotten on Facebook every day. I should have said this was the article. Notice how well strategized this is. I should have spoken to it, um, including when it had the the desired result of making my fundraising after the second debate go down. Mm. My fundraising letter should have been, have you noticed everywhere you look, I'm crazy, dangerous, anti-vax, anti-science, wacko crystal lady told AIDS patients not to take their medicine, fat shaming and ableist. That's how scared they are of me. Send $25 now, please. Yes. Yeah. Because I think, and I think they thought that if I had been on the stage the third time, they would have had an inconvenience on their hands. Yeah. Yeah, that actually, what you're saying actually, you know, dovetails nicely with what's happening now with the whole force the vote conversation about Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Because there is this sense that like once you're in Washington, D.C., once you're in the belly of the beast, you sort of like look around you and think, you assume that there's like a reason for the hierarchy and there's a reason why Pelosi's the speaker. There's a reason why Chuck Schumer's one of the leading Democrats and like, well, they had to somehow get there through merit. So let me know my place and fall back a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, as you're pointing out here, no, actually, the reason you were elected in the first place, if you're, you know, a a justice Democrat, for example, in Washington, D.C., is people want you to fight for the things that you ran on, like Medicare for all and free college and a living wage. And so what you see now is they really are, are... they're not willing to take on that fight for the reasons that you spoke about. Like, what if the media comes after me and makes me the problem and makes me the bad guy? You know, and they're going to they're going to side with Pelosi. So why should I take on that fight? And, you know, I do feel like everybody in hindsight, it's a lot easier to recognize it. But when you're there in the moment, in the belly of the beast, just like when you, when you were running for president, you're getting all these attacks against you. You're thinking like, 
it's just so daunting. It looks like climbing Mount Everest to actually fight back when really that is what everybody should do. Especially when you've never done this before. Yes. And you have people around harder. you that well, that have and, and you're trusting their advice that they know the right thing no, to do. No, the only part of advice there was just the advice not to speak mm-hmm. to it. I naively thought our side was not as vicious. Mm. I saw the viciousness of it. Yeah. I saw the links they'll go to nullify someone's voice. I saw the outright lies. And I saw how easily people are duped also. I saw the lack of journalistic ethics, people taking some anonymous tweet as a source. Uh, one of the difficult things, uh, not that I want to dwell on this, because I, you know, I think we're 100% responsible for our uh, experience, and I'm not, in like, I'm not playing any violins here. But in a couple of cases, it was people who were heroes of mine, mm. people who I would say, wait a minute. I've been reading you for years. No one on that stage is saying as much what you say as I am. Right. And you're saying that woman shouldn't be up there? And I also thought it was very misogynistic. You mentioned mm-hmm. Andrew. He was from outside. He had never, he had never been in uh, office before. He was a businessman. So I'm not, I've sold a few books. It's just I saw things that were like, whoa. Yeah. So There were different strategies that were sort of deployed against each of you. Andrew, it was just like, we're just going to ignore this guy and not oh, talk about it to start with. Yeah. And, and with you, it was, we're going to paint her as like the crazy oh, crystal lady. No, we're actually coming after her. And, and they did. And no one ever talked about the incredible successes you had in the best-selling book and the fact that you were, you know, a very successful businesswoman in your own right and had every bit of a right to be on that stage as anybody else. And some of the people, even like people like Katrina, people who I would never have expected. Talking about my books, obviously not having read them, Mm. obviously mischaracterizing my work. Um, But you know what? This is not about me. Pardon? You're talking about Katrina and Vandenhuvel? Yeah. I mean, just the the mischaracterizations and the, the, you know, when you have a 37-year career and you've done decent work, I'm not a perfect person. Of course. But my work is, is not, I mean, just outright lies about who I've been, what I've done with my life. Um, interesting. The thing that initially made me skeptical of you is actually the thing that made me ultimately like you the most. Which was? Which is that your life philosophy, like, and I want to ask you this question because you could put it in your own words much better than I could sum it up, but how does your life philosophy inform your political philosophy? And, and do you have a label that you use for either one of those things, whether it's life philosophy or political philosophy in terms of like spirituality and stuff like that? How would you describe yourself? I saw you do an interview with Jimmy Dore where you said maybe New Age spiritualist. Does that apply to you or no? How no, do you like to I'm, describe yourself? Uh, no, I, I, the term New Age has been so mis, misused. No, I'm a Jewish woman. I take very seriously Tukun Olam. We're here to repair the world. And I, my metaphysics, um, I'm a student of a set of books called A Course in Miracles. And the course is not a religion, but uh, there's no dogma, there's no doctrine, but it's based on universal spiritual themes. So imagine a teacher of comparative religion who's not working within an academic setting or, and cross that with a non-denominational minister and the personality and worldview of a pretty traditional Jew. None, none of those are really outside pretty traditional boxes. It's been characterized as something it's not. Mm. Um, when I wrote a book, 
I my third book was called Healing the Soul of America. I was brought up in a very left-wing home. My father took us to Vietnam in 1965 to show us what war was mm. because I came home from uh, school in the seventh grade, and I said at dinner that the teacher said if we didn't fight in, Hawaii, in, in Vietnam, we'd be fighting in the shores of Hawaii. It was called the domino theory. My father jumped up. He said, sweetheart, he just called my mother, get the visas. We're going to Vietnam. That goddamn military-industrial <laughs> complex is not going to eat my kids' brains. God damn. And that was the kind of father so I you had. were there during the war? I was there in 1965. <laughs> wow. In 1965, you know, I was, what, 12, 13 years oh old. God. And then my father would, what are these kids? Um, bullet holes, daddy? God damn right. Who put those bullet holes there? U.S. government? God damn right. Who's oh going to win God. this war? Not us? God damn right. Wow. <laughs> So was your he dad was an immigration too, or no? And my father no? called himself a Jewish atheist, okay. which a lot of right, right, right. you know. But he, yep. he, you know, he he was very. He was my father. My father was very typical of his time. He was um, he was a real lefty from. You know, he was born in 1910. He was real 1930s lefty. He fought in World War II. I think of him as having been a very, very patriotic man. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was the uh, kind. He was a lawyer. He was a very well-known, very successful, um, very leading immigration lawyer. So I was brought up with very much knowledge and firsthand experience of the plight of the immigrant. Mm-hmm. I was brought up having been at those uh, ceremonies and what it means to be an American. Um, so I feel that I was brought up in a very patriotic home. We had a uh, American flag in the front yard, but very left, very left wing. Hmm. And Mary, so your your dad was obviously major influence. Family always is. What were the other forces that shaped you into the Marianne Williamson? Well, I started my my career began from a pretty academic and spiritual place. You know, I read these books. I knew. First of all, let me go back. I grew up in a generation where we read Ram Dass mm-hmm. and Alan Watts in the morning and went to anti-war, Vietnam anti-war protests in the afternoon. In my generation, there it wasn't disconnected lanes. It was a revolutionary time that was a cultural revolution. It was called the counterculture. It was sexual. It was musical. It was philosophical. It was spiritual. And it was very political. It was all of those things. And nobody thought that anybody was supposed to choose between the two. Mm. Um, After the assassinations, which literally, those bullets that killed the Kennedys and killed King, they psychically shot an entire generation of people. Mm. We knew that the bullets were meant for all of us. There was a very loud message. Mm. You will go home now. There will be no further protest. You can do whatever you want in the private sector, but leave the public sector alone. Wow. Or And they didn't even have to finish the sentence with, or we might kill you too. And just in case we didn't get the message, the kids at Kent State were killed. Yeah. And the two, it's like, I always say the, the traditional political types took the East Coast and the, the more spiritual types took the West Coast. <laughs> it was almost like there was this division. Huh. That's funny. For me, the two never separated. But I knew where my personal talents were, or at least my personal de- proclivities, I felt that I had something that I could give in the area of explaining the spiritual principles. I'm a popularizer. And that's what I do politically, too. Mm. I look at people and I say, you know, they, make, they try to make it look complicated, but that's just because they're trying to fool you. This is what they're really right, doing. Yeah. And that's just, it. it's the yeah. same, same thing. So 
but then when I wrote, so I was never not political in my personal life. Right. You know, I would uh, support Democratic candidates, et cetera. But then I wrote a book called Healing the Soul of America in 1998. And I read up more deeply than I ever had mm. on American history. Mm. And I realized, you know, at that time it was the Clinton years. Everything's good. Everything's good. And I'm thinking to myself, doesn't that depend on what neighborhood you live in? Doesn't that depend on what part of the world you live in? And I saw what was happening in the 90s and the Democratic Leadership Council and the money. I saw it. I saw what was happening to the Democratic Party. And I was saying, just as I would say later when Obama had been there, wait, isn't this what, not what we, you know, <laughs> right? And I would see how many people were being lured. Yeah. So then I wrote that book, Healing the Soul of America. And I and then I my career not long after I started lecturing, the AIDS crisis emerged. So from very early in my career, I worked very up close and personal with people whose lives are really in trouble. Mm. Now my career started about 35, 37 years ago, but something started to happen around 20 years ago. I saw how many people were in trouble, not because of the proverbial act of God, which can happen in anybody's life. You get sick, or someone dies. But how many people were in trouble who had done everything right, mm. and they were in trouble because of bad public policy? And I, I was told a story once. It was written by a, <clears throat> by a, a, a Protestant theologian, and he said, the story of, well, I think of it as a, the transition from the Good Samaritan to the Conscious Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan's going down the road and sees a poor person, a beggar, and gives them alms. And then the uh, Good Samaritan continues down the road and sees another beggar and gives them alms. And then the Good Samaritan walks down the road again and sees another beggar and gives them alms. And at a certain point, the Good Samaritan says, why are there so many beggars? Mm. And I realized how this system operates. You, this person is doing everything right, and they have to have two or three jobs. This person is doing everything right, and they don't have health insurance. This person is doing everything right, and they don't know how they're going to send their kids to college. This person is doing everything right, and they can't get out from under these college loans. And you expect all the societal, psychological, emotional, and personal dysfunction that emerges from that to just sit in the lap of people like me? You. Right. And I was not going to be quiet about it. What's what's really interesting about you is that you really do tie together stuff like the emotional turmoil and you tie it in nicely with politics and the economy and everything in a beautiful way like you just summed up right there. And so I th I think it's fair to say it's like you're taking that revolutionary spirit of the 60s and 70s and you're still, you know, a modern version of that, right? Yeah, I never got the memo that we were supposed <laughs> right. to stop. But what's interesting is... I think that's why some people don't like me. <laughs> very possibly. true. <laughs> like, I, there are people in my family who were part of that revolutionary hippie generation, and then at some point they took a hard turn right, and then they oh. became fundamentalist Christians. Right. And that's a thing. Like, that's actually a thing that I've seen unfold many I've times over. i about that. So what is it... How, how were you able to stay true to that revolutionary spirit? And do you see it reemerging in a way today that perhaps it wasn't previously? The younger generation, younger than the millennials. Uh, so it's like my father. My father grew up in the Depression very poor. A lot of people who grew up in the Depression very poor then were very cheap. My father was the opposite. Mm -hmm. I never want my kids to suffer like I did. He took the opposite. 
he just was angry. You know, he used to walk around the house, beat the system, kids, beat the system. And I thought for a long time he was joking, and I realized the old I've gotten, he wasn't I, I joking. I need to be more like your dad with right. my kids, by the way. You're inspiring so me. part of the, my father. I'm still trying to get his approval, and he died in 1994. Um, my family, though, my brother, my late sister, it's my family. We're not... Uh, um, in fact, I, I think about that in terms of age, because they say you get more conservative as you get older. And I find almost the opposite, that mm. what, why are we not just saying what's really happening here? What possible is, reason is there? Yeah, and I also, what are you hiding from? Yeah, you, you know, somebody told me, Crystal, you've got a few years to go before this, but somebody told me when I turned 50, 50 is the age past which you don't care what anybody thinks anymore. <laughs> and then 60 is the age past which... Not only do you not care, you have to say it. Right. You and don't have the filter anymore. Yeah. The filter's gone. Exactly. Right. But also, counterintuitively, you care more about what happens, even when it's a period of time after which you'll be gone anyway. Yeah. This strange thing, which you have, I don't know if you have children. No. But you certainly know it, that you, well, I might not be here, but my kids will be here. Right. My grandkids will be here. It's, um, it becomes very visceral. Becomes very visceral. I want to ask you about something <clears throat> you said earlier. Kyle asked you, like, how you label yourself or how you think about your your religious view and your personal view, and you kind of recoiled at the term new age. Yeah. Why is that? And also, you know, we both noticed you you did a long Facebook post about people who consider themselves new age and spiritual and following in, following into some of the conspiracy theories online, yeah. QAnon. And mm. what do you think is going on with that? Is that, you know, is that a phenomenon that you've seen before? What do you think is the, at the root of that? Well, in terms of my own, uh, the, the word as opposed to my work, <clears throat> if you actually looked at The Course in Miracles, it is a very serious theological tome. Um, so that's the answer to that one. Yeah. I've just thought of myself, I'm someone who's read Thomas Aquinas and, and um, uh, St. Augustine and Heloise and Abelard uh, as much as I've read um, Ram Dass. Uh, you know, I, I just think the way the term has been used has diminished and demeaned something that does not deserve to deserve to be uh, diminished and demeaned. So you see your work as more grounded in the classics rather yes. than some yes. new far flung Yes, theory. and that's been one of the things about the mischaracterization of my work that has been most personally insulting. Yeah. Yeah, so... It lacks intellectual depth. <laughs> so who are... Are there certain... Who's your the biggest influence on you apart from family in terms of philosophers or psychologists or whoever? Because I know when you spoke to Jimmy, you guys were talking about Carl Jung, that he sent you like a Carl Jung thing. And you were like, oh, you were a little surprised to get that from Jimmy Dore, this hothead comedian, right? But who are the philosophers, thinkers, political or otherwise, that you know are really your core foundational people to the way you think? Talmud, Buddha, and Jesus, actually. But I've read, you know, like some of these young ones, so I got to read Marx. I'm like, I was young too. I was reading, Ch I was listening to Chomsky before you were born. That's actually, that's <laughs> actually probably my biggest I, influence is Chomsky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that was everybody in my generation. <laughs> right. like, this is not new to a lot of us. It's yeah. kind of funny. And I think when I was on Chapo, they were like, you know that? 
like <laughs> <laughs> eight levels ahead of you, kid. <laughs> well, I was born earlier, you know. Yeah. It was just a different. It was it was that time. So when you ask, is that time coming back around again? Absolutely. What I see is uh, a younger generation. I'm, what is it? X. Mm-hmm. No, now we're on the Zoomers. And y the zoomers. I, I'm millennial. Okay. She's millennial. I'm talking about younger than you. Zoomer, right. There's a Zoomer. I'm talking about a generation (laughs) brought up by mothers who read books written by people like me. Yeah. Who have this comfort with the spiritual and the metaphysical. They're like, that's like, yeah. They don't, they don't, because a lot of the, it was a lot of millennials and a lot of millennial women, I'm afraid. Yeah. Who threw this, she's a danger to feminism. Uh, How do you like that one? uh, Uh, Her ideas could kill people. That wouldn't come from these younger ones who were raised with mothers who... Who had the strongest positive response to you? Like, who did you see as sort of like the core of your spurs? Because I know, I mean, we could tell when we had you on the show and the response online Mm -hmm. that there was a very passionate group Mm -hmm. that loved you and heard you Mm -hmm. and saw you and supported you. What was the core of that? You know, this is the deal. I I felt... The problem with my campaign was not what happened when I was in front of voters. The problem with my campaign was how after the second debate, such an image was created of me that made too many people think, you know, this kind of pseudo-intellectual, oh, I wouldn't listen to her. I know what Mm. she's about. I don't need Mm. to go. I know what she's about. I would hear amazing stories of people would be invited to hear me and people would go, I'm not going to hear her. Mm. That was the success of the people. When I actually spoke to voters, I had the same experience with voters that I've had for 37 years in my career. People would listen to me. Um, I may or may not be their cup of tea. But they didn't think I was a crazy person. They didn't think I wasn't a decent woman. Right. And I think voters, uh, and this is my sadness about it. I had people, the whitest audiences you can imagine in New Hampshire and and Iowa, Mm -hmm. standing up, standing ovations for conversation about reparations. People hear me. There's, there's. There's logic in what I had to say when I would talk about the Department of Peace, when I would talk about uh, what the factors are of peace building, about the budget of the Pentagon versus the budget of the State Department, the budget of the USAID, where we give our humanitarian assistance, how certain factors statistically mean there will be greater peace. I find the American people very decent. My father used to say, speak to the smartest person on the jury. So I was doing the same thing in my political campaigns that I've done for my whole life. Treat people like they're smart, and they actually are. And that's why I resent the political establishment that talks to people like they're dumb, mm-hmm. that, that, that purposely exploits them by confusing them. Right. And as you and I share, what they did to Bernie, what they did to Romanoff, what they did to Booker, what they did to Betsy Sweet in Maine, um, and what they're doing right now with this codependent relationship. Uh, You know, I think I had been on your show once, uh, and you asked me some things, and I said, well, right now, I am one of those people. I was one of those people, and I still stand by it. Let's get him elected first. But this is not time to do anything other than some radical truth-telling. I was looking at a uh, quote from Martin Luther King where he said, this is not a time for cooling off, and it is not a time for what he called the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. gradualism. Mm. We need to call these people on what they're doing, which is why I love what you, I, uh, you know, I love both of you for what you said. Well, again, that speaks to the force of the vote conversation that's happening now, you know, how... Mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't, I don't know. Did it actually start with Jimmy? Was he the first one? Mm-hmm. I guess he, he popularized it online, this idea that maybe progressives in the House can withhold their vote from Nancy Pelosi in order to force a vote on Medicare for all. And so these are tactics that you like in order to flex our muscle a little bit, drag the conversation to the left, and make it so that we're uh, – I mean, it kind of is crazy, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic, and the idea that we, sh- we should have a vote on Medicare for all is controversial? Not or, well, I see, I see it slightly differently. She should go for so many more reasons than that. <laughs> right, yeah. Fair. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, the Dem- Let's remember what happened here. We had Trump as president. The Republicans could not, would not get rid of him, and the Democrats could not get rid of him. They failed. No business in America would succeed if they continue to reward failed leadership the way the Democratic Party does. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why Republicans are successful. They have more uh, experience in the private sector. And in the private sector, if it's not working on Wednesday, it must change by Friday or this business might go down. And the Democrats, this codependent relationship with a woman that I, I don't want to personally demonize, I respect many of the things in the past, we... We did not do well in these races. No. Right. We did not do well. It was disastrous. And this codependent relationship, I, mean, I understand we were all supposed to be quiet until Election Day. Right. Not now. Not now. This is a democracy. It is not disruptive. Or another way of putting it is damn right disruptive. It's called the rambunctiousness without which democracy cannot thrive. And one of the things that I've been thinking about with all of this is, you know, when you are on the outside and you don't know these people personally, you're not part of the group, you're not, they're not your colleagues, you, you know, you have them at an arm's length distance. It's easier to be the bomb thrower and just, you know, not care about the consequences, not care about the personal relationships. I wonder if you have a sense of, I mean, I feel like there are strengths of being an insider. You've got the inside track, you've got their whole muscle protecting you and all of those tools at your disposal. But I also feel like there are strengths of being an outsider, even though it's a very hard thing to sustain that outsider mentality once you are part of this system in this town and all of the forces that come to bear on you. You know, once again, look at the private sector. You you can't be on the board of some big company if you're not prepared to fire the CEO if the CEO is doing a bad job, even if you've been at dinner with the CEO many times and been at the same cocktail parties and the same retreats at Maribel, which obviously you have been. That's not the way the world works except in politics. And why do you think it's different in politics? Because we have allowed them to form this elite establishment political class uh, which is like, read the Constitution, look at American history. This is aberrational. Hmm. This is new. It's kind of like saying, who are you to run? I don't know. Who said you could run? I don't know the Constitution. I was born here. I'm over 35. I've lived here for 14 years. If they had wanted to say, the founders, you have to be a lawyer, you have to be a governor, Mm. they would have. They didn't because they wanted every generation to decide for itself the skill set that they feel is most needed to navigate this time. Instead, we have this political class, this club. And by the way, what you just said is more true of Democrats than it is of Republicans. Hmm. Republicans, ironically, have more chutzpah. They'll get rid of their leadership if they don't like it. Yeah. The now they have this cult thing with Trump. But look at someone like Eric Cantor. 
Pardon? Uh, well, I said the Tea Party ousted Boehner. Yeah! Boehner was like, I can't and take Eric them coming Cantor? at me all day, every day. I'm exactly. out of here. Exactly. Yes. This is this weird, and because of the work I do, it's a total, it's like an alcoholic family system. It, it's very codependent. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. It's like nobody's telling the truth and everybody's gaslighting. Everybody's afraid to upset mommy or daddy. You've used that but, word a couple times, codependent. What, like, what do you mean by that? It means that that you are t- that you are allowing um, these people to they are I won't I won't say lying to you but they're messing with you yeah and you should know better and they mess with you before and they're messing with you again and they're messing with you and it really is irrelevant that they're nice people it's like I'm sure you've had the situation we had to say to a girlfriend honey. He's a bad guy. <laughs> He's a bad guy. I know you love him. I know the sex is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's like. It's like these people, they have failed. Yeah. They have failed. And they didn't even try. Right now, all of a sudden, Chuck Schumer, we need that $2,000. Yeah, yeah. Where the hell were you? Yeah. Nancy even. Nancy. And they, Biden, too, was dragged uh, there. They should have been saying from, from March, $2,000 a month and nothing less. Every and day. she should have come out of every negotiation. Instead, she says things like, well, we were waiting for them to tell us what the president wanted. What does it matter what the president exactly. wanted? Exactly. It doesn't matter what you wanted. And they should That's have been right. saying to the American people every single day, $2,000 a month. And if well, they did that, not only would they have gotten $2,000 a month, they would have won. 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 <laughs> and it was, it was Bernie and Hawley that dragged everybody there by coming out in favor of it. Bernie now saying, we're going to block the defense bill. Unless you allow a vote on the $2,000. Oh, and I love how Susan Collins says it's a vital defense bill. Like renaming <laughs> the military bases is vital. Money right away for yeah. the Balkans is vital. It's always vital well, I love to that one too. A, a raise for the, for the troops, $2,000 a month would be a raise they would appreciate. That's More right. than the raise Why, that yeah. they're slated to that's get, That's another the thing. The Democrats, that's another thing we have to call them on. They're, this idea of, oh, well, it was a bipartisan support of the Pentagon. That's because they're both whores to their right. money. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Democrats are about the big pharma the way the Republicans are about the NRA. Mm-hmm. Oh, you cannot question. You cannot question. Well, why not? Yeah. Look what, you know, and that was one thing I went through, and that was definitely used against me. We have, uh, we have a multi billion dollar uh, settlement on the uh, Sackler family, which is a slap on the hand. Right. It doesn't touch their personal wealth, absolutely, by the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we know now it is established in court, the predatory behavior of big pharmaceutical uh, executives when it came to opioids. But you are not, it's like you cannot question any any other thing that they do. Mm. And I'll tell you something, a lot of Republicans, that's why a lot of Republicans vote Republican too, because they see how blind the Democrats are on that one. Well, yeah, I think that, I mean, <clears throat> that's that's the root of the problem, right, is that the corporations have a stranglehold on both political parties. That's right. And to your point, yes, there's this like elitist cabal that runs the show, uh-huh. and they're actively hostile to every single issue that the American people are right. overwhelming majority yes. in favor of, whether yes. it's a living wage <clears throat> or ending the wars, for example. We all want all these great things, and leadership says no, and then the people who we send there to fight kind of lay in a chalk outline of yeah, themselves I mean, on the ground. 80% of Americans want $2,000 checks. Right. 80%. 80. And this the is majority not... of Americans want Medicare for all. Yes, yeah, and you right, have people 70%. like... Paul Krugman, who's supposedly liberal or progressive uh, or whatever, coming out and saying, oh, $2,000 checks is divisive. And Larry divisive. Summers. Divisive. What? Divisive. 80% of people support it. It's insanity. That's right. The, the, the level of um, human despair. There's just been too. There's something in this town that's very interesting. Not that Krugman's in this town, but New York, it's the, it's all the same. The same. Yeah. There's, on one hand, 
and living here is interesting because on one hand, I understand that there has to be an order for the government to exist. There has to be a level of on which they're sort of inured mm. to the ups and the downs. But the bubble here is impenetrable. Prote- and it's protecting something that should not be protected. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it's and and somebody so when you talk about the outsider, the insider, there should not be outsiders in America. Who is an outsider? Mm. The very concept this this is America, remember? We're not supposed to be a class system. Yeah. Uh, you're an American. I don't even if you weren't born here, the day you're here, you, there's no outsider. We're all supposed to be insiders. I remember um hmm. Yeah, during the campaign, I definitely saw how that works. <laughs> so I want to ask you, what was your um, what was your first taste of fame? How did you become Marianne Williamson? Um, I was giving lectures and then very active in the AIDS crisis, very active at that time. I wrote a book. Uh, people would say to me, you ought to write a book. And I would say... I don't feel pregnant with a book. And they'd say, well, it's in your your tapes. These, those, We had cassette tapes in those days. And I'd say, I don't know how to get it from my cassette tapes to a piece of paper. And ultimately, I met a literary agent. He said, I will help you do that. I wrote a book called A, Cor- uh, a Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of A Course in Miracles. It's kind of like the cliff notes of The Course in Miracles. And as things would happen. There was a movie, I think it was called Crash. And I think it was. And it was uh, back in the early 90s, because the book came out in 92. And it was a book, it was a really interesting movie. And there was something about miracles. Well, in Chicago, there was this woman named Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) And she, we've heard of her, (laughs) uh, but she didn't have her book club yet. And she, uh, her, her producers were sitting around talking about, um, what could we do with this movie and miracles? And one of the producers said, well, we just got this book sent because, you know, publishers what's in their mm-hmm. books called The Return to Love Principles on the Course in Miracles. And Oprah said, I'll take it home. Read it this weekend. Now, when this nice lady, Oprah Winfrey, called my apartment, I just thought it was a nice lady calling my apartment. I mean, I knew she was on TV and I thought she was good. There was no book club yet. I had no idea uh, that this would change my life. And she got up and she said it was the best book she'd ever read. And she gave a thousand copies. And she really gave me the exposure that led to the career that you and, that's amazing and what, what was that experience like, like well once again i didn't i just thought it was a real nice lady and i was you know when you're there it's what's this like yeah and she is in person who she is in, in public, right yeah you know? which why one of the reasons why she's so successful is yeah, that because people yeah. can see that yeah she's a very genuine person that's actually one of the things that you know when we were talking about the type of guests that we want to have on this show and how we think about, you know, who to bring in and who we really want to hear from in extended form. One of the qualities that we talked a lot about was, like, vulnerable. Willing to be yes. sort of vulnerable open. and real and open and honest and authentic, which you would think is not a hard thing to find, but actually in this town is kind of a hard thing to find. That's why you were number one on the list immediately because <laughs> we know that you're open and vulnerable. And that is actually one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, like, you've had 
you've taken over the past, not just with the presidential campaign, but for years, you've taken a lot of incoming. I mean, anyone who's in the public eye is going to get attacked. And then with your campaign, it was over the top and total attacks on your character and your intellect. Every minute of every day. And everything else. And the reaction a lot of people have to that is to build that, build the wall around themselves and not allow anything to penetrate, not let anyone in, not letting anything out, any of that. And yet you've somehow managed to avoid doing that, which, you know, makes you I think it gives you a lot of personal power, but it also does leave you vulnerable. Right. It means that you can still let things hurt you. How have you how have you been able to sort of maintain that in the face of so much incoming? I think in a way it's the opposite. Mm. The only way uh, to not be hurt is to be totally defenseless. Mm. When I That's a good point. Uh, yeah. when I got out of the campaign in January, uh, first of all, there's a there's a principle that you're 100 percent in the Course in Miracles. It says you're 100 percent responsible for your own experience, and if you do not take 100 percent responsibility, the price you will pay is that you won't be able to change it. Mm. So I had to look. Where was my campaign that which should have been? Where did I not fight back? Which was interesting for me because so much of my work in life has been about being less tough. And in that situation, I should have been tougher. Should have given it right back. Mm. Some, there were some interviews where I would have said, no, you listen to me. These are the facts that you're obscuring with your fancy talk there. Um, so that. and But I, I knew when this year started the demons I had to face were any temptation to self-pity, any temptation to bitterness, and any temptation to victimization. Mm. That you get to the point, no, it happened. I'm not going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm going to name what happened, but not with violence on my shoulder. Right. And there's a big difference. And that if you don't, it, it skews your personality. And I didn't want that. And I also believe that there's another phrase. Uh, lesson in, in the book, which says, you create what you defend against. If you become like this, mm. and I've seen that enough in my personal life, yeah, and I saw that with men in my life, that if I become like, you're not going to hurt me. Nobody, no man's going to hurt me. You know, yes, he'll find a way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you are subconsciously <laughs> going to set it up. So um, I think there's a certain level, you know, that soft as a feather, hard as a stone, soft as a feather. It's in the Bible. Gandhi talks about it. I'm not 100% there but I'm, I'm, uh, I feel I'm on the path. Even the fact that you're, you're able to have a very objective view of yourself and how you approach these things, I think puts you a league above most other people. Um, I don't think it puts me on a league above other. I mean, in terms you, of their perception, in terms of like you know, they're not people aren't as. Forget about being vulnerable with others. Are you vulnerable and open with yourself? Do yeah. you really know what you think, feel, believe in yeah. all these things? Most people are, are burying it and hiding it and, you know, but it's brave to just let it all out. Not most people. Just most people in politics. Mm. See, this was my whole thing. If you look at American civilization, American culture, except for politics, is not stuck in the 1980s. Right, yeah. <laughs> so everywhere you look, you could, yeah, you could yeah. be talking, you could be <laughs> having CEOs, Fortune 500 companies, they're having retreats where they're going to meditation sessions. Right. You have Harvard Medical School uh, having symposiums on integrative medicine. You have educational retreats where, and conferences where they're talking about the whole child. What what was deemed as, ooh, she's wacky. No, 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 no. You guys are wacky. That's how I look at the political establishment. They're back 
they're back in the they're back in the 20th century anyway. So the idea of a whole person perspective, the idea that the leader must be authentic. This is like new business. This is like anybody, guys who run and, and women who run like major, major, major companies. Like this is what old style top-down leadership is out. Holding a space for the brilliance of your employees is in. I'm I'm simply coming in with a conversation that's like where the rest of America is. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's no different than what you're saying about issues. America's over here. And then the political establishment's over here. Right. And then they don't understand hmm. why the American people hold them in such contempt. I do. That's right. Really and you struck a nerve. You struck a nerve. So the final question I wanted to ask you, and then I'll turn it over to you, Crystal, if you have something you'd like to ask. This was the one I was most excited to ask you about. So um, in one of your books, you talk about faith and how, to sum it up and correct me if I'm wrong, you're more or less a, a believer in destiny. And... Mm. When I was younger, I was more the opposite end of the spectrum where I was like very big on like everything's free will and you kind of create your own destiny and plow forward and make it that way. I feel like now as I've gotten older, I do tend to believe more like I'm not really in control of anything. As much as I think I'm in control of stuff, like <clears throat> stuff's just kind of happening and I'm watching it happen. I'm less of an active participant as much as like I'm also somehow on autopilot, like with the laws of the universe or whatever. You know what I mean? So I want to ask you about that. What do you think about that? Do you think that I'm right in my new version of it? Or was young Kyle right to believe in like, you know, wild free will? Okay. I think there's a thesis and antithesis and a synthesis here. So I like every, every... I'm confused, but I like oh it. So the egg and the sperm come together and this extraordinary process Very of hot. cell Continue. regeneration <laughs> occur. And then the cells Wait, begin I'm to divide. <laughs> And every cell knows where to go. And so the embryo is programmed to become the baby. The uh, bud is programmed to become the blossom. The acorn is programmed to become uh, the um, the oak tree. Mm. You, I believe, are programmed to become the highest manifestation of creative possibility this lifetime. Because nature itself is intentional. The difference between you and me, however, and the acorn is that we have free will. We can say no. The acorn can't say, no, I don't want to. We can say no. So what is destined, I believe, is that you and Crystal are here together because there's some level on which just the cells are led who can collaboratively serve the healthy function of the organ of which they're part. What is completely open to free will is what you will do with the relationship. Mm. Right. So I believe that the, and I also believe there's a line in the course that says, it is not up to you what you learn. It is merely up to you whether you learn through joy or through pain. Mm. So I think the universe is, is intentional. You know, uh, there's a, uh, a line in the Talmud where it says that over every blade of grass, there is, a, is a, an angel whispering, grow. So the universe is always nudging us in the direction of that which would be the greatest good. But free will means we can say no or we can say yes. Just like when people say um, about the environment, well, the worst that could happen, the planet will be okay. The planet just might have to throw us off for a few hundred thousand years, which any person of decency must see as an intolerable Mm. option, given the unimaginable amount of suffering that would occur. Well, what's going to happen is that we're going to get this right. 
the only question is how much suffering is going to happen first. Mm. And whether through joy or through pain. That's all that's happening. And, and I personally, I have to have faith. And I, and I think a lot of people do. And the way both of you talk, I sense that you do too. We feel this American thing is worth fighting for. We must have, I don't think any of us could be doing what those of us who are doing the are, unless we believe it, it can happen and it will happen. But we know that if we don't get it right, it could take so long and it, so much suffering could come first and so many chapters of authoritarian, et cetera. Um, ultimately, I believe it's that whole, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It is up to us how quickly to bend it. That's where free will comes in. We're going to get there. That's the story of the crucifixion to the resurrection. That's the story of the Jews enslaved in Egypt to the promised land. That, that three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection, that 40 years in the desert, um, is a symbol for how long we, t- we tarry. Yeah. And so what is the story, do you think, ultimately of 2020? Americans, I think there's a great awakening going on. A painful awakening, but an important awakening. Um, if you read Michael Lewis's book, you've probably read Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk. It's a great book if you haven't read it. Mm. Um, so to see that our agencies, how our agencies had been captured by corporate forces, um, I think the emperor's, the fact that the emperor had no clothes, um, the whole thing being so corrupt as it is, um, the fact that we have an economic and political system that is uh, guided by advocacy for short-term profits for huge multinational corporations, even at the expense of the life, not just the safety, not just the, the welfare, the life of people and the life of this planet. I think people are seeing uh, this thing's bad. This thing's corrupt and rotten to the core. But our principles are not. Our Constitution is not. Um, and whether people are fighting that good fight, boring from within, uh, or whether we're on the outside, it's all the same. We're Americans. Uh, in, in Judaism, an old biblical uh, rabbinical line is, you are not obligated to complete the task, but neither are you permitted to abandon it. Mm. And, I think, and I think this is something else that happens when you get older. Um, I felt as a child of my generation that, you know, you were, we were sort of told, like I said before, you're going to leave the public sector alone. Go into the private sector, do whatever you want to do there. You can, you'll have so much choice. You can have the red one. You can have the green (laughs) one. You can have the yellow one. You can have the blue one. And I, when my first book sold, and Oprah Winfrey had me on. I had what you're supposed to, you know, wow. And I did what everybody in Los Angeles does when you have that happen. You buy a house. You buy a house in Montecito. And I remember the first day um, sitting in my new house on my nice couch looking out at my beautiful swimming pool. And I felt my father's voice, the bastards got to you, didn't they, little mm. sister? The bastards mm. got to. Wow. A lot of people say I overreacted by moving to Detroit. But um, <laughs> you begin to realize at a certain age 
when we were younger, we were afraid to speak up because we'd seen what they did to Bobby. We saw what they did to Martin. We saw what they did to John. We saw what they did to the kid at Kent State. That was very visceral. We knew they'll kill you. Now, the thought, you get to an age where the thought that you might die knowing they scared you off and you didn't do what you know in your gut you came here to do mm. is right. yeah. actually scarier than the thought that they might kill you if they yeah. do. Particularly when you look at this woman, Lujain, or however you pronounce her name, mm. in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. She, mm. Five years in a Saudi Arabian jail because she was protesting for a woman to get to, to drive. Right. Or the woman in Hong Kong who wrote missives from from uh, uh, dispatches from Wuhan is now being tortured as American women. What are you going to do? You're going to throw tomatoes at me? You're going to lie about me again? You're going to ambush me on CNN? Right. What is that? Right. Yeah. You it's just a... got to read Aaron Brockovich. We all need more chutzpah. And, and funny <laughs> well enough, said. I think, like, you know, somebody like Edward Snowden who has to hide away in Russia because he did followed his conscience and did the right thing by the this Constitution and exposed, you know, all the illegal, unconstitutional spying going on. There's an argument he probably sleeps better than any of us because he actually stayed true to his conscience. So if you're doing what you know is right, let the chips fall where they may, and it is what it is. And and I'll be fine because I know I'm following the right path. Yeah, but as you say, all these people, all these, like, you know, all these people style themselves as, like, resistance heroes and their bravery and their courage. And it's like, you're not risking anything approaching what these women have risked that you have risked, right. what That's Snowden right. risked. I mean, you know, for and, us to get mean tweets or whatever. Yeah. Right. Just so tweet, yes. Yeah. And, you know, also, everybody acts like it's so traumatic. People would talk about how tra- traumatized they were by Trump. Think about the trauma of being on that bridge at Selma. Mm. You didn't know if the the bullets were coming, the dogs were coming, the hoses were coming. Think of the trauma of the women suffragettes who were thrown in jail for no other reason than they were marching for suffrage. The conditions in the prison were so horrible that that they went on a hunger strike. The response of the prison officials was to send men into their cells to put these metal contraptions on their necks to force feed them. Oh, my God. You know, I think you and I, and this is one of the reasons I admire you so much, American women are not porcelain dolls. <laughs> and we need to, some of us need to remember Need to that. remember that. Marion, um, I think your voice is so incredibly important and maybe uniquely suited for this moment, which is exactly why both of us were like, no brainer. We want to see if Marianne could be our first guest. So thank you for not being a porcelain doll. I feel the exact same way about you. I feel the exact same way about you. Thank you so much. And I'm a big fan of yours and and honored to have been on your program. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was Marianne Williamson. And all I have to say about that is... She's amazing. (laughs) She really is mind blowing. Um, You know, I I touched on it a little bit with her where I said the thing that I was first skeptical about with you is the thing that I came to love about you. And what I meant by that is, listen, let's keep it real. The brand, to the extent there is one, Kyle Kalinske is like brochialist. (laughs) <laughs> like atheisty, like hardline, like no nonsense guy. Right, very right? sort of practical. Yes, and to operational, the point, not yes. like super. Yeah. So in a way, the opposite of Marianne. Even though we have very similar politics, yeah. In terms of like spirituality and stuff like that, I'm viewed as like very anti-religious, anti-God, anti-spiritual, and all that stuff. So that's why early on there was a little bit of like a one stereotype 
hating another stereotype with her where I mm. look at her and I'm like, you're the, you are the new agey crystal lady, crystal with a C, not you're, with a K. You're right. Like, that's how we I looked at her. the same emoji, by the way. That's like right. part of how we bo- <laughs> I bonded with Marianne. So there, was, there was, so there was a little bit of a dismissal from me. But then over time, what I came to like about her is that she's actually, a mil- in that role, she's a million percent authentic. In the same way that I'm like an authentic brochialist, yeah. she's authentically spiritual in a way, even if she doesn't like that term. And so I came to love that about her because it makes her different, interesting, and unique while still being authentic. And I, hearing out her perspective always gives me a perspective that never would have occurred to me on my own because that's just not the way I think. I have to say that I think, and I I said and I told you that, you know, I knew Marianne a little bit before her presidential campaign. And so I think because I I knew that Marianne before the media caricature of Marianne, I had a little bit of a different experience of her in her campaign. And I mean, one person who got her like right away, which is interesting too, is Michael Brooks. Yes. Yes, he did. Had he a did. very similar like yeah. total synthesis of his political view and his sort of like philosophical view and wasn't afraid to marry those two. And so he got her right away in the way that I think most people kind of really didn't. But I also would say I actually think if she was stepping onto the political stage now, I wonder if there'd been be a different response. Because I know for me— In a positive direction? Yeah. Because yeah. I know for me, like—and I think I don't think that I'm unique in this way. I mean, this year has caused a lot of soul-searching, rethinking, like, questioning of my own sort of philosophical beliefs, what I believe. Do I believe fate, death? Like, what is going on? What does this all mean? Where is this all heading? And so I think there's a little bit more um, humility maybe at the end of 2020 than there was when she was starting in the Democratic primary about what we don't know. And it's a little bit more of like an exploration mode than a like, this is how it is and this is how it's going to yeah. be. Because so many people's worlds have just been completely rocked and turned upside down this year. So I wonder if she also would have been received differently at a slightly different political moment. But I mean, I found... I find her to be very courageous because it takes a lot of courage just to be different yes. and talk, just to speak in a different way and mode and language than anybody else that was up on that stage. Like, and to know that you have the potential incoming of she's crazy, she's ridiculous. Like, that's everybody's deepest fear is to be written off as like absurd and ridiculous when you're trying to pour your heart out and yes. be honest and yes. be vulnerable. And she faced that head on. Yeah. And compare her to somebody like Mayor Pete, right? <laughs> and it's like you have this like cutthroat, ladder climbing careerist who hasn't had an original thought in his life and doesn't even really care about issues outside of himself and mm-hmm. and getting somewhere getting from point a to point b for self-aggrandizement and narcissism and like you see that and how inauthentic it is and the fact that he does get the media praise and the right. reward and he's loved and then you have somebody like marianne who's completely authentic and different and it's just like they try to just snuff that out of you however they can yeah. and so that uh you know that's why i really have done a 180 on her. I really do feel now, like, I don't think I originally put her in what I would consider the top tier of candidates that, and all I mean by that is the ones that I was sympathetic to on some level. Yes. So obviously Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders was in that. Andrew Yang was in that. You know, Tulsi was in that as well. Um, But Marianne, I still had like on the outskirts of that. But Mm -hmm. no, now I, I for sure, not just after meeting her or talking to her, although that did help as well. But even before meeting her and talking to her, yes, 2020, 
beat me down too. Like it just beat me down psychologically to the point where I was like, this is like, forget me not knowing what's going on and how, knowing how to like make things better. Nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows. So you're right that she gives us, she offers us more of like an exploration on these things and new ways of thinking about it, which is unique, authentic, interesting. And I certainly am so much more sympathetic to her now than I was when she originally was running. And can I also just say, I think she's fundamentally really correct about one thing, which is, you know, I think you and I both try to be super, like, practical and concrete about, you know, we want Medicare for all, we want jobs, we want wages, we want unions. Like, there's a specific program and policy set that we believe would give people, you know, more more efficacy in their lives, more happiness, more dignity, and would be generally better for everybody and for the entire country. But her sort of core contention is that you got to go a layer deeper than that. Like just doing those things alone isn't actually going to fix the biggest problems in America. And I think that's something that I wasn't really ready to hear until relatively recently. Yeah, I think your point is exactly right. It's not that you and I are surface level. It's that that's our lane. Our lane is politics and economic stuff. And it's like, look, I've looked into this stuff. I've seen the studies. I know that Commonwealth Fund study top 11 healthcare systems in the world, US is 11 out of 11, 11 out of the developed countries. Like I look at that and I'm like, okay, what are the best countries doing? Single payer. Okay, we should do that. That's how. That's as deep as I go. It's, it is very, in some ways it's surface level. I don't mean that with a negative connotation though. I just mean it as a descriptive thing. So yes, we're surface level, but that doesn't, that doesn't scratch a certain itch that somebody like Marianne is willing to scratch. Mm. You know? Yes. Like that doesn't touch on the deeper thing. And honestly, in a weird way, not to, derail the conversation or anything but it's sort of like what jordan peterson was providing for a lot of young men Mm. you know where it's like okay i'm gonna go a layer deeper with it and try to tell you why this thing is productive and why you should actually like being productive and how this touches on something more primal in you and and it's fulfilling an emotional and psychological role that needs to be fulfilled and again it's just it wasn't what it's not what i do it's not what you do but it's something marianne provides and what an amazing benefit to it that she also happens to have politics that are very similar to yours and I. So, you know, I, again, perfect guest for our first show. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm really floored as to how fun that conversation was. And um, thanks a lot, Kyle, for right here at the end of the show, making sure that the comments are all 100% about Jordan Peterson. Way to go oh, on that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I didn't say anything negative, so we won't get the swarm, you know. Agree or disagree with him. That's the role he fills, right? Like the fatherly figure. Yes. I'm so Marianne's like a motherly guiding figure. You know what I'm saying? Yes, okay, I know I'm just, what you're I'm saying. Just, I'm just, I know just what you're saying. Okay. Um, well, I'm excited to do this thing with you coming here into 2021. Um, Happy New Year, by the way, everyone. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting year. That's all I'll commit it, to. It certainly is. And I'm also very excited for this. I think we're off to a great start with this first episode. It was a ton of fun. Really looking forward to some of the guests we have coming up. And um, yeah, so Crystal Kyle and friends. There it is. It's a thing. Here we are. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Enjoy, everybody. Uh